The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. Glory Glory to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Lord Christ. Christ. Thank you for being here with us this morning. Can you do something for me before we begin? Um, will you let us know that you're worshiping with us? Um, if you want to pull out your phone, this is the first time I'll ever say that you can pull out your phone. On page 10 here, we have a QR code that you can scan and you can sign in and let us know that you're here so we can make sure that we are doing a good job of caring for you and that you are receiving communications and knowing what's going on in our church. If you'd rather go old school. If you're sitting on the inside aisle of your row underneath you is a black sign-in pad, you can pull that out. You can sign your name. You can pass it down the row as well. Thank you for doing that for us. So now, of course, we come to God's Word, and I think a somewhat unsettling passage. So will you please pray with me? Father, we do pray that the words of my mouth, that the meditation of all of our hearts together would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord. For you are our rock, you are our redeemer, You are our very King. We pray this in the name of your Son, our King Jesus. Amen. Well, in our sermon series this fall that we are going through in our capital campaign series, our re-envisioning, if you will, of All Saints' mission and calling, we've been taking parables out of the book of Luke and helping us to envision All Saints, what All Saints is, how God has made her to be, but also aspirationally what we believe God is calling us to be and hoping that we can live into 
Tim began the sermon series a couple weeks ago talking about Jesus as a king. Then last week he talked about the grace and mercy of this king and thereby of his people. Grace and mercy that can transform and change cultures of this church, of this world, of this city. And now this morning we come to a passage that seems, well to me at least, and I assume probably to you, a little uncomfortable. It's a parable ultimately about judgment. About judgment. And that's where we will begin this morning. Judgment, then the king, then the investment. Judgment, the king, and the investment. Well, this parable or the story, the structure of this parable that Jesus gives here in Luke 19 is actually a really well-known event that happened in Judea. So when Herod the Great died, his son, Archelaus, in order to become king over Judea, had to travel all the way to Rome and to meet the Roman emperor so that the Roman emperor could grant him his kingship over the land of Judea. But of course, when he got to Rome, it sounds just like the parable that Jesus is telling. When he gets to Rome, though, he finds that a contingent of Jews had traveled all the way to Rome along with Archelaus because they wanted to oppose his kingship and they wanted to argue against him before the emperor. Well, eventually, Archelaus is you know, crowned and granted the kingdom of Judea and he goes back. And when he gets back to Jerusalem, he rounds up all these people who had made the trip to Rome to complain about him and he has them all executed, just like in this parable. And everyone in Judea knows this story. In Luke 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and so everyone is in some sense expecting something similar to this to happen. He's about to, as verse 11 makes clear in Luke 19, they think that Jesus is about to immediately claim his throne, to become a king in some way and in some manner like Archelaus. And Jesus tells this parable and seems to be associating himself with the nobleman in this parable. And it's uncomfortable. Because the nobleman here in this parable is not the benign and kind Jesus that we are used to. I mean, this is a nobleman coming to judge and to reign and to put down rebellious enemies. But also, not only that, but to judge his own servants. Now, it's important to note that a parable is not a perfect one-for-one alignment with reality. Parables are more like proverbs and illuminating stories Of course, Jesus is quite patient at turning his enemies, like the Apostle Paul that we talked about in our series on the book of Acts, from an enemy into a friend. And of course, Jesus here in verse 11 is not coming into Jerusalem to initiate his kingdom, but rather a judgment that God is bringing further down the line and into the future. But we can't get away from the fact, the fundamental fact of this parable, that one day the end is going to come. And that there is a future final judgment. And that, I can tell, makes us all squirm a little bit. It's actually a picture that's very consonant with the God presented in the Bible, the way that God presents himself to us throughout the Bible. In our men's study on Wednesday morning, we've been studying the Lord's Prayer and taking different phrases from the Lord's Prayer and just kind of digging deep and seeing what their meaning might be. This last week, we talked about the phrase, hallowed be your name in the Lord's Prayer. Well, what is God's name? The name that God gave to Moses and the nation of Israel in Exodus chapter 3 is Yahweh, which means essentially, I am who I am. I exist. No one defines me. I define myself. That's not exactly very clear, is it? So God later goes on to define what his name Yahweh means. And in chapter, or sorry, Exodus 34, and in verse 6, he says this to Moses after the golden calf incident, if you remember that incident in Exodus. He says this, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is how God explains his name Yahweh. Did you hear it? Merciful, gracious, forgiving, steadfast love, and yet will not let anyone get away with anything. Is that good news? Does it feel like good news? I don't know if you've been following the Gabby Petito case. We may never know what actually happened to her. We may never find her boyfriend, who apparently may have been her abuser. He's gone. He's vanished. We may never find him. And if that's the case, then I think that God's judgment, that he will not let anyone get away with anything, is good news to Gabby Petito's parents. And I definitely think it is for the thousands of missing men and women and children whose names we will never hear about in the news. You see, if God does not in the end judge, then how can we actually call him righteous and good if he lets evil go and do what it wants to do? If no one ever has to face God for what they have done, then in fact, Jesus' death upon the cross is ultimately pointless because it isn't even really needed. And then God moves from being a just God to actually an unjust God for what happens with Jesus. You see, God is actually committed to justice. And the Bible doesn't shy away from this fact. It doesn't move away from the fact that God will judge. As we say in the Apostles' Creed normally every Sunday here, God will come to judge the quick and the dead, or in other words, those who are living and those who have died. Or as Paul says to the Christians in Rome in chapter 14 of Romans, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each of us will have to give an account of ourselves and how we lived on this earth to God. Just like this parable, the nobleman judges his enemies and he also judges his servants. And we squirm because I think we believe what the servant complains about here, the third servant in verse 21. We know we haven't lived up to God's standard and we are afraid and concerned that God actually is a severe and harsh judge. That's what the servant here in verse 21 believes. Seems like it's confirmed, isn't it? In the parable. In the parable, when the king returns and the judgment begins, we find that one servant has taken his mina and he's turned it into 10 minas. It's an incredible return. Another one has taken one mina and turned it into five, also an excellent return. And the pattern is set. We think that whatever the rewards are going to be, they're going to be associated with the return on the mina. So if someone, the next person we assume, comes and says, I have two minas from your one mina, he would be put in charge of two cities. But the next person here in verse 21, he says, and done something totally different with his mina. He's taken it and kept it in a handkerchief, in a napkin. Well, what does that mean? I mean, in financial terms, it means he invested his money into his mattress. He stuffed it into his mattress. That's what he did. He didn't invest it at all. But of course, we all know that this is not talking about financial planning. This parable is talking about the resources that God has given us and whether or not we are employing them for his kingdom and for him. And what the servant did here is he hid them all for himself. He was scared to lose them. He was scared to risk them. And then he says something here that seems compelling. He says, I was afraid because you are a severe man. You take what you do not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. And that, I think, is what makes us squirm. We are afraid that God is like that. Do you believe he is severe? and harsh? 
But you see, within this parable, that's actually a total mischaracterization of the nobleman. He's not like that at all. Not even within this parable. Who deposits the money to these servants that they might invest it? The king. And when he comes and they've made an investment on their return, what does the king do? Does he take it for himself? No, he doesn't. He gives it to them. And not only that, he rewards them beyond comparison. He says, you've been given 10 minus. Here's 10 cities. I gave you a trike, a tricycle. Well done. You rode it well. Here's a Lamborghini. That's what he does. He gives them greater responsibilities, far exceeding what they had before. This servant mischaracterizes the king to justify his own desire to protect the mina that he has. The mina that the king had given to him that he now believes is his. So he keeps his head down. He protects it. He hoards it. He refuses to use it as the king asked him to use it. He keeps it close to himself, wrapped in a napkin. It reminds me a little bit of George Eliot's Silas Mariner. I don't know if you read this book or not. When I was in college, I went to the public library to find some extra reading for some reason. I don't know. And I found a book on tape, and it was Silas Mariner. And I got it, and I put it in my car, and I listened to it on the way to school or on the way to uh, work every day. In this story that George Eliot writes, Silas is wronged by his community and by his church. So what happens when we meet him? He's an old man, and he turns inward on himself. He becomes a hermit. He becomes a hoarder of his gold. He has these gold doubloons, and that's what he believes is all that he has for himself. And every night he would put them out next to the fire, and they would glint and sparkle in the gold right next to the fire until he would fall asleep as if it was his nightlight. He kept himself from others. He kept himself from God. He did not risk his gold. He did not risk himself. The world he believed was cruel to him, so he became cruel to the world, self-protective, afraid, in a shell. And that is the servant here in verse 20 of Luke 19. You see, he misrepresents the king in order to justify his lack of service to the king. Notice the logic that the king uses here in verse 23. It's a rhetorical question that he asks. If you really truly believe that I was a severe man and you were afraid to risk the money I gave you, then why wouldn't you at least put it into a bank that it might be safe that it might produce a minimal interest and I would have a return. In other words, he's saying, you're not even living according to the characterization that you are claiming of me. What you're really doing is keeping my gift to yourself. You don't want to risk it on me. You don't want to risk it on my kingdom. That is why he's called a wicked servant. So if the servant's characterizations of the king and this nobleman in this passage is wrong, What is this king who comes to judge in this parable? What is he actually like? Well, we already mentioned he generously gives the gifts. He rewards those who use his gifts. And he doesn't actually demand a certain return. He doesn't have an expectation of return. Rather, he demands only that they take responsibility for the gifts that they've been given. And that's the nobleman in this parable that Jesus tells. How much more so Jesus? This nobleman has to go off to a far country to receive his kingdom. Where must Jesus go to receive his kingdom? The end of Luke 19 here, at the end of this chapter, is Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem to be crowned as king, right? But you see, it's not. He's not coming in as a returning king like Archelaus or this nobleman to claim his throne and to put down his enemies. 
When he comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's only the beginning of his journey to a far-off country. He must go to the gates of hell upon the cross. He must suffer all that the cross will bear upon him. That is where he must go to receive a kingdom. That is what he must do to receive his kingdom. He must do what Isaiah 55 tells us in our Old Testament reading. That gives us a picture of what Jesus as king actually, truly is. He chooses, as Isaiah says in 55, he chooses to be crushed, to become an offering for our guilt, for your guilt. He bears the guilt and trespasses of his servants so that he can make many, his own servants, be counted as righteous, to have his righteousness. In verse 12 here, it says that he poured out his soul to death. That is what he did. He fully donated himself. He held nothing back. He risked everything. He named himself nothing. He named himself a guilty transgressor so that you could have his name as a righteous son and a righteous daughter of God. In other words, he did not wrap himself in a napkin. Do you know how George Eliot redeems Silas Mariner in her book? On Christmas, a baby wanders into his house. Let the reader understand, on Christmas, a baby wanders into his house. And the child there demands of Silas Mariner a world of self-donating, self-sacrificial love to care for her. And as Silas donates himself, he is rewoven into the community. He is pulled out of his self-protective shell, pulled out of himself, freed from his idolatries. He's made alive again. You see, God's expectation for his people is not because he demands to receive a payment from you because of everything that he has given for you. That's what the wicked servant believes. That is not who God is. He is meant, and his expectation and the gift that he has given us is meant to heal us, to make you, like Silas Mariner, radically free, joyfully detached from the idols and self-protective, self-focused attractions of our heart that make us fearful and bitter and angry. It isn't meant to demand success and performance from us. It's about joyfully joining with him in his redemption of the world and the expansion in the world of his love and grace. That is what he is doing. My friends, if you're in Christ, you have received a mina. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. He has given to you without reservation all of himself and his love and his name. And he does not ask you to earn his love, but he does ask you to respond to him, to love and to, lo- to live and to love like him because you bear his name now out into the world. It's a beautiful thing watching Collins get baptized this morning just a moment ago. The world is before her. She's full of potential. And as she goes out into the world, she will carry the name Clement with her wherever she goes. But in this moment when she was baptized, she is given a new name. She is called and named by God. And she will also bear God's name out in the world. Called forward at this moment, into God's self-donating life. She was called by God 
and thereby all of us are called as well. I hope you're paying attention to the words of the baptismal covenant that we all said together, especially the ones on page six. The first ones are who God is and what God has done, and page six are our joyful response to him. That is Christ's mina to us, his love and righteousness, so that we can be the very presence of his self-donating love to a broken world until he returns, joyfully responding to him, joyfully cooperating with him, investing ourselves into God's growing kingdom. I hope, I hope you saw this week that we launched a new website, and Mary Freiberger and Luke Nickel have spent a lot of time working hard to bring that to bear and have done a really wonderful job. Our mission statement for All Saints is pretty long, though. It doesn't fit on a web screen. And so Tim distilled our mission statement to simply this, called to live and to love as the body of Christ, called by God to be the living presence of Christ's self-donating love. That is Christ's call to all saints. That is Christ's call to each and every individual Christian to take responsibility for what God has given us and the place that he has placed us with the life that he has given. Last week, Tim mentioned many of the things that we are hoping and praying for that this capital campaign will enable us to do at all saints. He talked about planting new churches, church planting, support groups, our ministry, expanding our ministry to our Latino and immigrant neighbors, new staff, new ministries, new opportunities. In other words, enabling us to take the gifts that God has given us right here in this place at this time to take responsibility for them and be self-donating presence of Christ to our neighbors. We cannot do that without you. And I do mean in support of the capital campaign, but I also really mean giving yourselves away for God's mission here, investing yourself. You know, we cannot run the children's ministry without you. Every year we have difficulty filling those volunteer spots. We cannot do it without you. We cannot run support groups without you. We cannot do what we do here on Sunday mornings without you. We cannot love our neighbors without you. We cannot serve our city the way that God has called us to serve our city without your cooperation with God's spirit and God's call upon us. And our staff has remarked all throughout the fall that we are seeing lots of new faces in worship. We are so glad that you are here worshiping with us. Tim led a new member class, a very, very full new member class yesterday. And praise God for that. There are so many people that God is bringing to this place. Do not wrap yourself in a napkin. Invest yourself. Risk. Give yourself your time, your talents, your resources, your righteous deeds. Invest in the eternal future and kingdom that God is bringing. It's a safe bet. It's a sure bet. Because there is a day coming when the tab will come due. No one's able to outrun it. And we will all be called to account for what we've done with our minas. But remember, the mina was given to you by the king who has held nothing back from you. He is just but he is not severe. He has paid your debt. He has made you righteous and holy at his expense. He has already given all of himself for you and to you.
So keep your eyes on him and joyfully respond and donate yourself to him and to his kingdom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do ask by your grace that we would all be made into the men and women who live life in response to your son Jesus and more and more look like him, embodying the self-donating, self-sacrificial, self-giving love that your son Jesus has given to us, that we might joyfully respond to him and participate in the work that you are doing, redeeming the world, redeeming all things, and making all things new. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. Amen.